0: kicked off a new series in the new year called From What Is to What If. And the concept here is that we're trying to move from living lives as people that are Jersey people, right? It is what it is, and so there's nothing I can do about it. And we're trying to at least get one foot planted into the world of, well, what if? Maybe what could be? And so that's what we're trying to get at. It uh, life. The kind of life that Jesus talked about and modeled is a different kind of life. Not life as we know it, you know, i got to grind it out, got to make the donuts. Every day when I leave for work, I look at my dogs and I'm like, you know, they always give me the guilty comp- conscious when I'm leaving because they sit there sad with their toys in their mouth and I'm like, boy, somebody's going to make the kibble, i got to go. This kibble doesn't just grow on trees. But we get caught in that cycle, right? Get up, go to work, come home, go to bed. That's the kind of life that Jesus, I mean, we do have to do those things. But Jesus talked about and he modeled a different kind of life, life abundant with the peace and the joy and the comfort that, uh, that God... I mean, God made a lot of promises in the Bible. The reality is for many of us, we haven't experienced them. And so what we've been trying to do is, is learn from Jesus how we tap into the provision and the pleasure that God has for us, the purpose he has for us. Now, anytime you talk about uh, abundant life or a God of abundance... Two things kind of, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. The first is this prosperity concept that maybe if you stay up late night, you'll see that kind of ministry on TV, uh, that God just wants you to be rich and have stuff and get promotions and all that kind of thing. Um, I don't, I don't want to pop your bubble, and maybe you won't come here anymore because people, other people will tell you that that's what God wants for you. God really doesn't want you to be rich. I mean, He has no problem if you are rich. Um, but here's the deal. I think, I think Jesus talks about it a lot. Uh, the, you know, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else. And because money is the number one thing that competes with God for our hearts. And so, certainly, God w- wants us to live blessed lives. But I'm not sure blessing, somehow, we in our lives go, well, that means God wants me to be rich. I, I don't necessarily think that's true. That's not his ultimate ends. You know what Jesus' ultimate ends are? Jesus kind of strange. He is the means to his own end. Jesus is the means and he is the end. I would guess um, for most of us, we see the, through the prosperity guy on TV at night, right? Very few of you have spent or sent in $20 to get water from, you know, the Nile River or something. Uh, I don't think that that's our biggest threat here in Menham, New Jersey. I think the other side of the spectrum is most of our experience and is most threatening to us. That's this, um, we, we come to believe that God is not interested in our lives, that God can't actually be part of our daily lives, that, yeah, we believe in God, but we don't sense him, we don't know him, we don't experience him. I think that's the real key here. Very few of us have had experiences where God has broken through and, 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 and made good on all of the promises that he has for us. We know him intellectually, but we don't know him intimately, right? Um, It's as though we claim we're people of faith, and this is true of me sometimes. I claim to be a person of faith, but oftentimes I can live kind of like a functioning agnostic. I believe in God, but, you know, for the most part, I'm just going to make my way on my own. See, that's not God's will for us, and I think that that's the way most of us are living. He's calling us to live a different way. Um, Jesus sent his son so that we might know him, experience God, and, and be drawn into a relationship with him. And so since our walk with God is often limited to just a head knowledge with little experience of him breaking into our lives, we tend to live with a, uh, as a people with a mindset kind of bent on scarcity, serving a God of abundance, And since we don't trust this God and all that he has for us and his promises that he would come through for us, that he can be relied on, we tend to all of a sudden just kind of refocus on ourselves and our own abilities and what we can make here of our lives. The scarcity mindset, when, when that happens, when we kind of abandon God and really don't hope on him anymore... This metastasizes in our hearts and and it sends us into all kinds of striving and competing and fear and anxiety and depression. Here's what we've discovered in the scriptures. The life of Jesus is anything but that. And on several occasions, he shows us uh, what I've been discussing as a pattern or a rhythm of life that if we would kind of connect into, that is where the experiential part of walking with God is. That's where the abundant nature of God flows. This pattern, that the, this rhythm we're looking at is first discovered and seen in the feeding, the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. If you remember, I've been ta- telling you this it's, it's really kind of interesting. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four gospel writers in your New Testament. It starts with those four guys. They wrote those four books. And the only pre-resurrection miracle that all four of those gospel writers said, well, if we're going to talk about Jesus, you've got to get this miracle in there because this is that important. The only one that they all said was that important is this feeding of the 5,000. And then what Jesus did in that feeding the way, in a sense, that, that he came to God and the abundance of God met him is through this kind of pattern. And we see that same thing played out four other times in the scripture. And so today I want to look at kind of another one of those areas where we see that same rhythm and pattern played out. This one is recorded by Matthew. Now, Matthew was an eyewitness of the events we're about to discuss. Matthew was sitting at the table with Jesus on the night of the Last Supper. Here's what Matthew saw, heard, and eventually wrote down. He says, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. And there you have it, what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Same pattern we saw with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes the bread, he, break, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives it away. Now, In the last couple weeks, go online if you have not heard these talks, not because the presentation of them was anything great, but because I really want you to understand the first concept, because I'm not going to go over it again today, but the first concept had to do with the breaking of, or excuse me, the taking of the bread. Jesus takes the bread, and he sees the concept of capacity. In the bread... Jesus sees something more than it is what it is because he understands the abundant nature of his Father. He sees, Jesus saw in the bread, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, capacity in a couple of loaves and fish, to feed the masses. He saw what God could do with what he had. He understood the abundant nature of God. And we talked about how we need to begin to see that in our own lives, capacity in our own lives, in ourselves, in others, believing that God has the ability to do with us, to do with our stuff, and to do with others more than you could ever hope for or imagine. That's the first concept. As we try to kind of readjust our minds so that we can live like Christ and experience God. We have to see things differently. Today I want to look at that second thing, the second portion of that rhythm and pattern. Matthew says that Jesus took the bread and and he gave thanks. At least that's how the translators of the New International Version, which is maybe the one we use here most at Mendham, that's how they translated the word, gave thanks uh, just if you're not familiar with the scriptures, the Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew. The New Testament is predominantly written in Greek. And since I'm not sure how many of you can read Hebrew or Greek, what's happened is over the centuries, people have translated them into various language, languages. There are all kinds of um, in, in versions of those translations because certain Greek words don't, and certain Hebrew words don't have a one-for-one one meaning. For example, there's one word for love in the English language. I think there's six or seven in Greek. And so the translators need to make certain choices about certain words when they get to them about how they're going to kind of look at that Greek word or that Hebrew word and make it something that you would understand. So if you were home going, moving along with us and and, and studying some of the stuff that we've been studying, and you you looked at your Bible, and basically if it's any other version other than the New International Version, you would have seen a different translation. Here's how most translations put it. Here's how they saw what was written in the Greek. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, eat. Same four-part pattern. Yet giving thanks is replaced with gave a blessing. Now, I don't want to go too far down into a rabbit hole here, but I want to point something out because I think that if we look at it, we can learn something from it. So just quickly, right? If you look at the five times in the Scripture, this pattern of take and bless and break and give, if you look at the five times that in the Scriptures, you'll see the writers take that second Thing, either bless or give thanks, and they translate it, either give thanks or bless, based on the Greek word. And there's two different words that are used. One is eucharisteo, right? And that's, now I'm not a Greek scholar, but in doing the work on it this week, eucharisteo means to give thanks or be thankful. That's the easy word. So a lot of times in that pattern, eucharisteo just means Jesus was thankful. He gave thanks. By the way, if you've ever heard the communion, or communion referred to as the Eucharist, that's where that comes from. It comes from that word. In the case of the Last Supper, though, this is kind of interesting, that's not the word that the writers use there. All of the writers use the word yologeo, which is similar in meaning, but it is a broader context. Eulogeo means to celebrate with praise. That's kind of like Thanksgiving, right? But also to invoke a blessing or to consecrate, a big religious word, to consecrate. And so listen, jumping back out of the rabbit hole, what do we see? We see Jesus takes the bread and with the full understanding of the capacity of his God, he gives thanks for it and he blesses it. He takes what he has. He sees it for more than it is. He sees it for what it could be. He understands what his Father could do with it. Jesus has an abundance mentality. He gives thanks and he blesses. Giving thanks. you ever, you ever thought about it? Jesus and the concept of giving thanks. When does Jesus give thanks? When do you give thanks? If you're like me, uh, who uh, I was trained up by my mama in giving thanks in a particular way. All mothers tend to do it in the same way. Some, uh, some uh, one when you were a child, at least when I was a child, you'd go to a parade and inevitably a clown would come up and hand you as a little kid a lollipop. Of course, a clown couldn't do that anymore. He'd be tasered and arrested. But when I was a child, you were still allowed to take a lollipop from a clown um, and jam anything a stranger gave you just right into your mouth because you just presumed to be okay. And so when you got a lollipop, when I was a kid, just as you were kind of feverishly removing the wrapper and you were getting ready to enjoy the rapturous pleasure of a sugar high, your mom would always, at least my, my mom would, and sometimes like with the back of her hand, Stop me. Johnny, she would say. Do you you, you know there's a a, a simple question she'd ask me? It was a four-word question that she ask me. Anybody know what the four-word question, right before I was about to eat that lollipop, my mother would ask me? Anybody know? See, my mom somehow had an impact on all of you. (laughs) Um, What do you say? Now, when I was a kid, before she trained me, I initially just responded the way my flesh responded. So I, 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 she said it was a four-word question. What do you, you say? And I, I look at the clown and say, do you have more? Uh, <laughs> but then with one more sleight of the hand, um, my mom taught me that was not the answer to the question. The answer was, thank you. You, you, you see, we're trained in a certain way. We give thanks in response. Jesus shows us a different way of giving thanks. Uh, certainly, he gives thanks in response, but Jesus also thanks in expectation. Uh, here's what I want you to think about: There's 15 to 20,000 people on this hillside, right? That we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but at the time they weren't counting me, uh, women and children. And, and all Jesus has to feed them is a, a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. There's not enough here. If that little boy were to come forward today, and I, I was on the mountainside, and he handed me a couple of fish and a few loaves, I, I would go right back to my childhood question, do you have more? But Jesus doesn't ask that question. In the midst of scarcity, my mind goes to scarcity thinking, in the midst of a scarcity experience, Jesus gives thanks for what he has. And in my mind, he gives thanks with a mindset of trusting in God for what is yet to even come. When's the last time, when's the last time you gave thanks to God right in the midst of scarcity when you didn't have enough? Have you had those moments, right? Like, you know, the the college tuition is bill, and the bill is due, and the mortgage bill is due, and the car broke down, and there's just no way these ends are going to meet. Isn't it right then that we always just pause and stop and go, God, you've been so good to me? (laughs) Right? We don't. We go, where are you? What about all your promises? I thought I'd have enough. Right? When do you stop? See, we tend to thank God in seasons of abundance, but we blame Him in moments of scarcity. See, we fall into this pattern. It's a trained pattern of giving thanks in response for abundance or in response to simple provision. But when you understand the capacity of God, what He could do, it frees you up to give thanks in all circumstances. There is power in proactive, not reactive gratitude. There is power in proactive and not merely reactive gratitude. This attitude of gratitude that Jesus demonstrates, even in the midst of scarcity, reveals to us A mindset that can unleash within you, quite literally, a transformation. And I am not blowing smoke at you. The Apostle Paul, who himself started out as an enemy of the church, Paul was the first and great oppressor of the church. He later, after having a post-resurrection encounter with the living Jesus, Paul goes on to be its greatest evangelist, its greatest missionary. After you get through those four gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the rest of most of the New Testament is written by Paul. Paul himself takes the bread, and and he blesses the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. It was Paul that wrote, we must be transformed, but we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Do you know, did you know, that being thankful, gratitude, literally transforms your mind? Paul would go on to write to a church in a city called Thessalonica this. He says, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances. Even when there's 20,000 people standing around and all you've got is a couple of fish and a few loaves, you give thanks. Why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See, people come to me all the time, I just wish I knew what God's will was. Pastor John, tell me God's will. We could start here. Have you ever been been thankful for a moment? Even when when the odds are against you, even when the ends aren't meeting, have you ever just stopped and said, oh God, I'm so thankful for what you've given me. I love how Paul goes on, he he ends it this way, he goes, do not quench the Spirit. If you want to hinder the work of God through the Holy Spirit in your life, here's simply all you need to do, walk around with an, an attitude of ingratitude. If you you don't want to experience God, just walk around continually grumbling about your current circumstances. It's God's will for you to rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because he's a cranky old man that's, that's upset because you don't appreciate all he's done for you? No. Because your good, good father knows it changes you. It literally transforms your mind. This is not spiritual. It's scientific. Go home and Google it. It's that important we have to teach this to our children you see what my kids tend to hear me saying all the time is why can't anything be easy why can't everything oh nothing ever goes the way i want it to go right i'm training them to be ungrateful that's, not, that's hurting their minds. A new study came out. Here's the title. Gratitude physically changes your brain. Quote, new, new research reveals the biology of why gratitude is such a powerful happiness booster. Something, you, you want to make, you make this practical? Here's as practical as I can get. And here's right out of this study. Something as simple as writing down three things you're grateful for every day for 21 days in a row. This is not that hard, people. Three things, 21 days in a row, listen to what happens. Significantly increases your level of optimism, and it holds for the next six months. You wanna feel better? You wanna change your mind? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. They did a study on this, it, it, it's funny. The re, this researcher um, from Harvard, Sean Acker, said this research is so amazing Uh, They did a study, parents, uh, I want you to hear me on this, because our children are suffering. With 43 subjects suffering from anxiety or depression, half of the group was assigned a simple gratitude exercise to write letters of thanks to people in their lives. That's it. Just write a letter to somebody and thank them. Three months later, all 43 of the kids underwent brain scans. During the brain scans, the subjects participated in a gratitude task in which they were told a benefactor had given them a sum of money. And gosh, that study sounds a lot like the parable of the talents we talked about last week. They were given somebody else's money, and they were asked whether they'd like to donate a portion of the funds to charity as an expression of their gratitude. Those who gave money away showed a particular pattern of activity in their brains. But that wasn't the most interesting part of the finding. What was? Quote, the participants who completed the gratitude task months earlier not only reported feeling more grateful two weeks after the task than members of the control group, but also months later showed more gratitude-related brain activity in the scanner. The research should describe these results as profound, long-lasting, and particularly noteworthy. Here's their conclusion. Practicing gratitude kicks off a healthful, self-perpetuating cycle in your brain. Count your blessings now. Makes it easier to notice and count them later. The more good you see in life, the happier and more successful you're likely to be. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know why? Actually, you know why. Because ungrateful minds translate what hasn't happened into what can't happen, what won't happen, what will never happen. Ugh! I didn't get the promotion this week. I'm not going to get it again next year. I'm not going to get it the year after that. Life never works out for me. A grateful mind, on the other hand, a grateful mind trained in gratitude and not hearing daddy grumble all the time about how bad life is, a grateful mind thinks about everything that has happened, can happen, and gives thanks and trusts that even greater things will happen and should happen. Do you see the power of gratitude? So be thankful. I really mean it. Like, work on it. Like, write it down. Be thankful. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In the face of 20,000 people, Jesus was given a couple of fish and a few loaves, and he, he goes, thank you, Father. Second, and maybe more importantly to see in Jesus's blessing of the bread is, is this idea of consecration that I spoke of earlier, that word yologeo, it means more than just giving thanks, and that's why it's translated differently. It also means consecrating, which is a big fancy religious word, consecrating, but it's got a simple meaning. To consecrate something simply means to set it apart from other things and use it for the purposes of God. Jesus takes the fish and the loaves, And and when he gets them, there's not enough. But he sees in them the capacity for what God could do. And in the midst of all of the scarcity, he gives thanks for what he does have. And then he sets them aside for the use of God. In Jack Alexander's book, The God Guarantee, I've encouraged you to read along with me in it, he talks about this concept of consecration. And he says it carries with it two ideas. The first is that in our lives, our gifts and even our struggles could be consecrated set apart, set aside for God because we invite God into them and, the, and, and he uses them for our own purposes. But consecration, or excuse me, for his purposes. Consecration is also about something God does. See, as we give to God our offerings, as we give to him things in our lives, he steps in and he purifies them and he takes what we've set aside for him and he makes it holy. When you consecrate things for God, Those things that you set apart and aside for him, they become holy. God is holy. The holiness of God is what theologians refer to as his otherness. Jesus sets aside, he consecrates for the use of God some fish and loaves. They become holy. As I thought about it, it occurred to me, we consecrate things all the time. I'm a great consecrator. Some of them God calls us to consecrate, others we move quite naturally towards. For example, in the, New, in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, right? There's actually 600 and some commandments in the Old Testament, but in the, the Big Ten, as we refer to them, one day was supposed to be consecrated, one of the seven. What day was that? Sunday. You're to take one day, and you're to consecrate it. You're, you're to set it aside for the purposes and use of God. And as a culture, we used to do that all the time. Not so much anymore, right? We still have taken one day, Sunday, and consecrated it for something. Every fall, we take our Sundays, and they are consecrated to the grand use of Roger Goodell, Right? Next week, Super Bowl Sunday, there is an entire day that will be consecrated towards the use of the National Football League. We consecrate things all the time. Most of the time we consecrate them to our own use and pleasure. You know about consecration. You're familiar with some of the ways it works in the church. The church has taught uh, over the years the concept of the tithe, right? That, that we should give to God and the works of God 10% of what we earn. We should take what we earn, and we should take a portion of it, in this case, a prescribed, at least in the Old Testament. It's no longer prescribed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's more probably seen as a minimum because God wants you to give what you, you're happy giving. But, but the concept was that you were to give... Take, set aside 10% of what you have and use 10% of your money for the purposes of God. But what if the concept of consecration was more deep, was more profound than that? Is it possible, hear me on this now, is it possible that we don't experience the promises of God because as people we've consecrated to Him nothing? In other words, as the people who want to experience God, as people who want to know Him intimately, we haven't consecrated any of our time, effort, thought, relationships, nothing. We've given nothing to Him for His purposes. In fact, if if anything, we just claim Him to help us with our purposes. The word holy, it's picked up a lot of cultural baggage over the years. Very few of us would would use the word holy to describe ourselves. Well, you know, um, Pastor John, he's just holy, I hear you guys talking in the foyer. (laughs) I've never once heard that in my life. Um, Usually when the word holy gets used for a person, right, it's it's either because they're a priest. Maybe if I wore more robes, I'd get that. But um, more, I mean, just be honest, more, more often in our culture, holy is used derogatorily, right? Oh, you think you're so holy. You think you're holier than thou. Here's the truth. Our calling, if you if you would say this morning, I, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, or at least I want to be, you have a calling, and the calling, believe it or not, is to be holy, to be set apart for God. You remember Peter, right? Peter was a guy that you would say, okay, maybe he wasn't all that holy because Peter was was following Jesus, but you remember when times got, it got a little bit scary, uh, he said, oh, I'll never deny you, Jesus, never, never, never. I've got your back, Jesus. And then Jesus gets arrested, and, and, and Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows. That, that Peter, that Peter that Jesus restored and renewed and said, "For now on, I'm going to change your name. Your, your name is going to be Petrus. You're going to be the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. That Peter, here's what he said about Holiness. He said, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Now, if you're like me, you read that, and that sounds like a pretty heavy burden. Be holy. Don't just be holy, but be holy in everything I do. I mean, really, God? If we're honest, not only is it hard to believe that we could achieve that, but but just being honest, I mean, it sounds less than enticing. I mean, is anybody, you know, when you go to think about vacation, does anybody go get the carnival cruise thing and go, you know, is there a holiness cruise that I could get jump on sometime coming this spring? And I think that's because we misunderstand the word. By holy, I mean um, I mean what, what it, it doesn't, to us it, it sounds like rules, right? And rituals and robes and, and being sentenced to watching Christian films all the time. If you ask the average guy, what does it mean to be holy? I think my guess would be that, well, it just means being good. It means being right. It means being being moral. It means keeping the Ten Commandments. What is it? Well, give me specifics. Well, if you want to be holy, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, that kind of thing. Now, please hear me on this. No doubt, a call to holiness brings with it a call to a moral living. But man, if you think being holy means, equates being moral, you, are, you have totally missed what God is calling you to. When Peter gives the call for holiness, he actually references something else, uh, another teaching. It's in quotes. He, he says, for it is written. It's a quote right out of the Old Testament book of Leviticus. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. In that book, Leviticus, this Old Testament book, holy is the defining word of the book. It's used at least 77 times, more than in any other book in the Bible. Four times God says, be holy because I'm holy. But what's important is to understand that quote that's getting pulled out of there. I need you to understand the concept because what Peter is not talking about is people. What Leviticus, the quote where he's getting from, Leviticus, the holiness concept, has to do with things, which is confusing for us. I thought it was about being moral, and you're saying that it's about things. Let me explain the context from which he's talking. In Leviticus, tables are holy. uh, Tents are holy. Utensils are holy. Pots are holy. The prophet um, Zechariah says this, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. Gifts are declared as holy. Holy. And so, if holiness is morality and being good and following the Ten Commands and not having any fun, right, how can a table be holy? How can a pot be holy? It doesn't make any sense, right? It, 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 they can't live up to something. They can't be good. Holy, the Hebrew word, just like the word consecrate, means this, to be set apart to separate from others, to be, to be called to otherness. God is holy. While we're made in His image, God is holy. He's utterly different than we are. He's completely different from every other being. He's totally unique. God has His own category, and nobody else is in it. We sing, and it's true, there is none like Him. There really isn't. So what does it mean to have a holy pot. It would mean that you would take your pot, you would take it away from the other pots, you would likely, at least in Old Testament times, bring it down to the priest, and the priest would use that pot for the purposes of God in the temple. And so the command to be holy, as Peter quotes it here, while it carries with it the concept of obedience and morality, the context is this. You're called to belong to God. You're called to His use, for His use. You're called to be set apart for him. You know, anybody can be moral and not holy. You ever met anyone like that? Somebody that's, you know, you're like, oh man, I'm a Christian. I'm trying so hard to be good. And you just meet like the best person. They're like, you're like, they give their money away, and you know, they, they're just the nicest, so kind, they never gossip. I've met these people and I'm like, oh man, so you're a follower of Jesus too? They're like, nope. No, I don't believe that. Really? Well, why are you so good? I don't know. just the way I am. It's the way my mama raised me. So, you see, this is my mother's fault, as I've reflected on it, that, this, that I, I, you know, all I know is to say thank you. Um, but that's not the case, right? Because you, you can be very moral and not holy. It's possible to be good, but not belong to God. Because the call from God is not to be moral but to belong to Him, to give ourselves fully to Him for His use and His purposes, not to be good. It results in being good. The reality is our call is much higher than being moral. You can be moral and completely out of relationship with God. I'm going to give you an example of this. Think about the way way we're trying to raise our kids. We want to teach them to be good people, right? All of us would say, well, what do you want for your kids? Well, I just want them to be happy. Okay, well, give me something else. I just want them to be good people. As measured by what? Well, I want them to work hard and do the right things and not lie, not steal, not cheat, respect others, be kind. We want them to be moral, which is good. And think about it, right? We sacrifice and we scrimp and we save to give them a better life. Some of you all are working two jobs, we're taking out equity loans to pay for their college educations. And then finally the day comes and Little Junior graduates from college. And of course, you know, we want to celebrate that. So, so we throw them a graduation party we can't afford and we put it on our credit card. And right after the party, Little Junior calls you over and you're thinking, well, now I'm going to get what I do for all of these years. And he looks up at you and he says, Dad, See ya. <laughs> what? What do you mean see ya. Well, I mean, you know, thanks for everything, but you, you know you raised me right, you taught me well. You provided for me at this point. You've given me everything I have cars, educations, all the rest. To be honest, I mean, I'm I'm doing all the things you want me to do. I'm working hard. I I got a job. I I don't steal or cheat or lie. I don't really need you anymore. I'm done. Thanks. See ya. And isn't that, in so many respects, what we do with God? Thanks, God. Got the stuff. Appreciate the sacrifice. Thank you for the laws. I'm trying my best to keep them. I'm a good person. That'll be good enough. See, this is what we do, hear me, moms and dads, and, and reflect on it as it's been handed down to you. This is what we do when we teach our kids that what's really important is that you're a good person, that you obey the rules. See, this is why it's not okay just to be a good person. Good people who aren't in relationship with God, who have not given themselves to Him, who have not set themselves apart for His use, they're as heartbreaking to the Father of God as your son would be in that story. Holiness, then, is to live to set ourselves apart aside for the use and purpose of God. And not just generically, in in all kinds of different ways. You see, Jesus sets the fish and the loaves aside for the purposes of God. And when he did, do you know what the fish and loaves became? Holy. It wasn't as if that fish had been a really good fish, circumcised on the eighth day, right? That fish was good. He was really nice to the other fish. Suddenly, because Jesus set them apart for the use of God, These, that fish and those loaves, they become holy. Now, what's the opposite, then, of living for God and his purposes? Well, it's then to live for ourselves, to live for our own purposes. This is a total change of mindset, okay? Paul tried to explain it to the church in Corinth. He said this, do you not know? Because holiness, what God is asking of us it doesn't, it's not just a generic, you know, be good, okay? It has nothing to do with that. He's talking about every area of our lives. Paul tries to explain it to the church in Corinth. He goes this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. And so honor God with your bodies. You were bought with a price. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins. And as a result, by the way, you are no longer under all of these moral laws. They can't help you anymore. You're not going to go to heaven because you're a good person. You're forgiven because of the price God paid for your soul. By faith that's attributed to you, it covers your sin, and therefore be set aside for the purposes of God. In this case, your body. Take your body This speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to what you put in it. It speaks to how you exercise it. It speaks to what you do with it. It speaks to sexually what you do with it. Your body should be taken and set aside for the use of God. But it's not just your body. The call call to holiness impacts every area of our life. In every area, in every respect, we're called to be holy, to to use those areas for God's purposes. And listen to me now. When we do that, that's when the blessings of God, the abundance of God flows in our lives. It's there where God's abundance and purpose meet. The principle applies to every aspect of your life. You know where you think you could never be holy? Work. Oh, work. Do you know what I do for a living? Do you know the people I work with? Work. Work. You know, there's no commandment about your work. There's not, not one of the 600-plus commandments in the Old Testament that I'm aware of speak to how you should work. But here's what Paul told the Colossians. Whatever you do. Okay, so I, you know, you're a CEO, congratulations, and you're a janitor, this applies. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. In other words, you take your job, you set it aside, and it becomes holy. You don't work for your boss's accolades. You don't work for your own recognition or advancement. You work for the purposes of God. I know it's hard to believe. Your job could be holy. And suddenly, when you start to see it, suddenly when you're working for God in it, getting the promotion, the raise, the employee of the month, it doesn't seem all that important anymore now, does it? And when somebody else advances ahead of you, it doesn't eat at you as much now, does it? Because you don't work for, for the boss or accolades. You work for God. Anxiety disappears. Depression starts to fade. Why? Because I'm not trying to pull something out of this. I'm just working here for God. I can do that anywhere. See, this is a principle that can be applied to everything. That's why holiness is intended to evade every aspect of your life. And here's what I would say to you. Just as you need to practice gratitude, you need to take time to write things out. You have to practice holiness. Here's a question. What have you in your life ever consecrated to God? Have you ever sat down on a New Year's Day and said, this is the year I'm going to take what? A day? An hour? A moment? You see, we wonder why we don't, We don't experience God. You you wonder why we don't sense His provision. You wonder why we don't experience His promise. We consecrate nothing. Have you ever sat down and said, Lord, out of what I've been given, out of what I have, out of my time or my talent or my treasure, I consecrate to you for your work. Make holy this. Jesus took the bread and he, He blessed it. He stopped and He set it aside for the purposes of God and it was right at that moment where the abundance and purpose of God made it holy. And what God did with the bread is what he desires to do with you. God desires to make you holy, not good, holy. It's another lesson of the loaves. A final thought as I close something I think, I know, I think Jesus would want you to know. Certainly, John wanted you to know because he wrote it down when when he he wrote about his accounting of what he had seen and experienced with Jesus. It was Jesus's one of his final prayers. And what you're going to see here is it it speaks to this concept of holiness, not driven by rules or regulations or robes, but relationship and intimacy. Here's what Jesus prayed. John wrote this. My prayer is, is, Father, that you would not take them out of the world but that you, would them from, that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even, even as I'm not of it. Do you sense the separation there? They're not of the world. They're, in a sense, now separate, even as I'm not of it. But I love this also because sometimes religious people tend to think, okay, so in order to be holy, I need to be separate from everybody else. So what we're going to do, men and Hills, is we're going to start our own community. We'll build ourselves a nice place where we don't let any of those bad people in. And then we'll only watch, we'll only listen to Christian music and watch Christian movies and everything then will be good. No, it won't. Nothing will change until we decide to start to set apart things for God. God does not call you out of the world. He doesn't call you to move away from your neighbor. He calls you to engage him. He calls you to be holy and be with. And here's what he said. He goes, as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them, I'm sending them into the world. And then this is just, I mean, you need to hear this. This is just crazy, okay? This is crazy. This is, this is God speaking to you. For them, that's you. For them, that's you. Put your name there. For you. For them, I've, uh, for them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus is, says, I'm going to sanctify myself. What's that mean? It says, I'm going to make myself holy. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus is going to be good for us? You know, God, I've decided Jesus goes, I've really been screwing up, dad, up until right this moment, but now I'm going to turn over another leaf and be good. Of course not. He was holy his whole life. He never sinned. It has nothing to do with morality. He's already perfect. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give myself away. I'm going to separate my desires. I'm going to leave behind my desires for myself, my fleshly desires. I'm not going to run in the face of the cross, even though my flesh cries out. I'm going to give myself on their behalf. I'm going to live and die for their purposes. Jesus sanctified himself for you. Why? So that you might be sanctified. So that you might do the same thing. Guys, he loves you so much, he wants nothing more than your holiness so you might know a life of wholeness, of abundance and joy, a life of no longer living for ourselves and our stuff and competing and trying to, to to grab up resources and pass all this fear and anxiety down to our kids. Jesus is saying, listen, I... Father, I'm going to give myself away for them. And, And here's what I want you to see. To the extent you understand what he's done for you, to the extent you understand how he sanctified himself for you, to that extent is how you'll be able to give yourself away to him. Be thankful. That's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And be holy. Because your Father Let's stand and close.